I'm struggling a little bit this morning. I don't exactly know how to preach the things that I want to say. It's the ideas are complicated, complex. The reality is much simpler. But getting the simple process into words is where I'm struggling. Maybe, maybe it will help if I describe a scene like this. Your 16-year-old son gets his driver's license. You let him take the family car to his friend's house in the next town over to study. He's supposed to be home by 10. 10 comes and goes. You call the house where he's supposed to be. No answer. 10.30. You start calling his other friends. They don't know where he is. 11 o'clock rolls by, and now you're really nervous. You start calling all the parents you know. At 11.10, you hear a car in your driveway. In walks your son. Maybe you are the gentle sort of parent who can wait calmly for an explanation. But regardless, you are likely experiencing two different emotions at the same time. You are furious with this kid for worrying you like that. How immature not to call and let you know what was going on. How can you trust him with the family car now if he won't even let you know what's happening? And at the same time, you're so relieved to see him that you want to hug him around the neck. Two related motions, anger, love. It almost feels like they're the opposite sides of this same coin. If you've heard the scriptures this morning, you've heard the phrase, the fear of the Lord. And somehow, I'm wondering if the fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord are opposite sides again of the same coin, and I don't exactly know how to say all of that. During my youth, scare tactic films were all the rage in Christian circles. We watched movies like A Thief in the Night and other Billy Graham films that warned us of the coming rapture, and these films had mixed success. Lots of folks gave their hearts to Christ and are still serving Christ because of the impact of those films. But there are others, some who have talked to me about this, who ran away so fast they never looked back because they were so afraid. I'm, I'm not making any judgments about any of that. Because it's true, when you read the scriptures, Jesus uses some really harsh language of the New Testament to describe people who, Matthew 18, cause any of these little ones to stumble. Matthew 24, take advantage of his servants before his return. Matthew 13, cause sin and all who do evil. Um, for anyone who refuses to enter through the narrow door, there's plenty to fear when we talk about the relationship between a sinful humanity and an all-powerful God. And in the Old Testament, we're specifically commanded to fear the Lord, Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord, walk in obedience, love him and serve. Notice fear and love in the same sentence there. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Job 28. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. 
Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. We praise the one we fear, it seems. Psalm 128, blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. Proverbs 22.4, humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. And you think to yourself, well, the fear of the Lord, that's just like an Old Testament concept. Forget that. I mean, don't forget the Ananias and Sapphira story, right? Lie to the Holy Spirit and drop dead. And great fear seized the whole church, the scriptures tells us. They knew who they were dealing with, right? In Acts 9.31, it says, Then the church through Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. May that return. And was strengthened living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Somehow the effectiveness of the ministry of the church was tied to the fact that these people humbly understood their relationship to God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. So, so how do you talk about the fear of the Lord? Some, some modern folks who are uncomfortable with the notion that we ought to fear God, they begin to switch out the word for awe, stand in awe of God. But one of the things I like about some of the more modern translators, they're really honest. And some of the most recent translators, especially the one I preach from regularly, refuses to do that. When it's talking about judgment, when it's talking about fear, it's straight there. And all doesn't quite catch all of what's being said when we're called to fear the Lord. How do you hold together in one mind both of these concepts? God is our Abba, the one who invites us into an intimate family-like fellowship with him, and our God is a consuming fire. I mean, both are true. Sides of the same coin. When we consider that we've got to figure out a way this all comes together, I want to understand how then does that impact our worship? How does it impact our practice if we understand God in these different kinds of ways? In a very primary and fundamental way, our worship is based on who God is. What are his attributes? What are his abilities? What has he done? And what has he done in his relationship to us? What we affirm is he is the almighty God, the one who is all-knowing, present everywhere, all-powerful, and reveals himself to be holy love. It's hard even to say a sentence like that. It is so huge beyond our understanding. All-knowing, present everywhere, all-powerful, holy love, all of that is who God reveals himself to be. One of the early forms of confession for the church, a, a, a phrase that is central to the, to the mass even today, is this three-phrase statement. Christ has died. Christ has risen, Christ will come again. It's the mystery of faith. 
And even that is just a piece, just a part of what we say is true about God. He experienced death. This is an expression of true humility, not vulnerability, humility. The fact that he rose is a profound mystery. We can't explain it, but we confess that it's true. We affirm that this being we worship has power over life and death. Sensible folks would fear a person like that, wouldn't you? Someone who has power over life and death. But we might not be all that afraid if we believed, well, yeah, he may have that power, but I never saw him flex his muscles. He pretty much stays on his turf and we live on ours. But there is a third statement in the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. He's not staying on his turf. The whole message of the incarnation is he has invaded our turf, which was always his turf because he created it. And he is present everywhere here and now and will come again physically to be with us. So this is the mystery that we have to grapple with. And this return of Christ, when we talk about it, what do we say in the creed? In the old King James, which is what I memorized it in, so you're stuck with this. From thence he will come to judge the quick and the dead. From the right hand of God he will come from heaven to judge the living and the dead. Right? It's not just a mission of hooray celebration. This is a mission of judgment. And so it's appropriate to fear the Lord because he is our judge. Judgment is an honest theme throughout Scripture. And Jesus himself talks about the division of the sheep from the goats, a division that is centered on how those two different groups treat the people that God cares for. So it sounds like this all-powerful being cares about how we treat one another, but for some reason doesn't bully us into compliance with his agenda. So here's what I'm left with when I consider all of that. God loves us and has demonstrated that fact in many different ways. He desires that we love him in return, but not in simply a mildly affectionate way, but in a way that embraces his right to guide our love, our lives. His right to guide our lives. This loving God of ours has standards principles, objectives that we are to embrace. In the similar way, a child embraces his responsibility to help his family run the family business. I mean, you understand that dynamic. We don't see it perhaps as much today, but you know, if your family is the family of the butcher, all the kids are helping in the butcher's business because that's what you do. And if you had to do it out of the fear of your father or for the love of your father, you still got to help with the family business. And, and that's the kind of family the kingdom of God is. We're brought into a family, this kingdom of light, where the Father loves us and we're born into this family, we're adopted into his family, and then we're given the task of helping him run the family business, which is making sure everyone on the planet knows the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But God doesn't twist any arms to get compliance. 
but that fact does not remove the fact that there is a day of reckoning coming. So if God doesn't enforce his judgment in this day and time, is it okay for us to simply ignore it for a while? I wouldn't advise ever ignoring the authorities who have the power to enforce compliance at any point. I mean, if you've tried that with the DMV, you know it didn't go well, right? You may still get to drive your car for a few months after you didn't do the emissions test, but there's gonna be a fine that comes in the mail. There's, there's gonna be a day of reckoning coming. And the fact that God isn't demonstrating his power in judgment today in ways that we can understand or know for sure doesn't mean it's okay for us to ignore him. Remember, Proverbs 9 told us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And Paul seems to be saying that, that because we know who God is and because we fear him, that helps us understand our mission to persuade others to do the same. And let's face it, we're his family. We know the end of the story. And that's why we made movies like A Thief in the Night in the first place. But it seems interesting to me as I consider the ways of Jesus that though we're called to fear the Lord, he doesn't seem to use fear tactics anywhere in his mission. He's gentle. He's gracious. He doesn't raise his voice in the streets, the scripture says. He doesn't extinguish a smoldering flax or break off a bruised reed. He's, he's gentle and kind. But the fact that he's gentle and kind, the fact that he doesn't use fear tactics, doesn't mean he doesn't draw us in or invite us. What does he say? If anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself and pick up his cross. Self-denial and humility will be required. There will be sacrifices we will need to learn to live in the fear of the Lord. But Jesus isn't hitting us over the head with the club, even though the stakes are so high. I guess here's what I'm trying to say today. Yes, Jesus loved me. All true. All true. Yes, he is not willing that any of us should perish. Yes, he invites us to bring our most intimate concerns to him. But he is also a consuming fire. He is the judge of all the earth. He is coming again, and by right, he commands our obedience and our service. And our worship must include and respect these aspects of the power and majesty of God if it is going to mean anything at all and if it is going to be correct. You know, I have a laptop computer at my home that was rather expensive. I also have one of those wire spiral notebooks that has like 100 pages of college ruled paper in it that I paid a buck 25 for at Walmart. I have both those things at my home. When I go to travel and I take them with me, I get in the car, I throw the wire rim notebook over the back seat, hope it lands somewhere back there. The laptop, however, 
I put that in a special case. I walk around, I open the door, I make sure it's firmly seated on the, on the chair so it won't slide off. Maybe put a towel or something around because, because it's expensive. And I treat each item based on their value, on their, on their worth to me. Do you get my meaning? Does your worship of God demonstrate that you understand who God really is? Is the appropriate level of fear evident in your worship of the one true, thrice holy God? Is your worship all kumbaya and very little a mighty fortress is our God? Have you forgotten that Jesus is coming back from the Father's throne to judge the living and the dead? One of my favorite scriptures is probably because I need to speak it to myself so often is Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And I've not thought terribly deeply about it at times. And I never quite connected the fact that when it says let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near really means that if you understand yourself to be continually in the presence of God, it changes your behavior, right? I mean, you know that. You'll say some things to your kids when you're angry at them, but if the neighbor happens to be on the porch with you, you don't say it the same way because you don't want your neighbor to think you're that kind of harsh parent, right? And so, so you modify your words based on the presence of someone else. Think about how we would worship if we really believe, let your gentleness be never at all, the Lord is near. If Jesus comes in on a Sunday morning and sits in the pew to observe our worship, would we worship differently? Would our... Would our enthusiasm be different? Would They taught me in seminary that every time the word of God is preached, that it becomes an event of the word, which means Jesus attends it and walks through the pews of the sanctuary, pressing his claim through the Holy Spirit that Jesus is present whenever we gather. How is it we so easily forget that Jesus is near? We say omnipresent and the word flows off our tongue and we barely consider it. That the one who is present is the judge of all the earth. The one who is a consuming fire, who is also our loving heavenly father who also invites us into intimate relationship with him. He is the almighty God, the one who is all-knowing, present everywhere, all-powerful, and reveals himself to be holy love. I'm really wishing I had like some massive choir here today. So we could like sing the hallelujah chorus together and worthy is the lamb and something giant and big with 55 brass instruments and a pipe organ that fits the whole balcony. Because we need something like that, I think, if we're going to adequately 
praise the God of the universe. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I'll sing you a verse of a hymn that's been in my mind as I've been processing this this week. The God of Abram prays, who reigns enthroned above, the ancient of eternal days and God of love, Jehovah great I am, by earth and heaven confessed. I bow and bless the sacred name forever blessed. The God who reigns on high, the great archangels sing, and holy, holy, holy cry, almighty King, who was and is the same, and evermore shall be. Eternal Father, great I am, we worship thee. I need help to worship him like that. And we want to invite the Holy Spirit to reveal the nature of God to us so that we also worship him in spirit and in truth. Heavenly Father, we only know you in part. We don't even understand all of your revelation to us. And yet what we do know is all inspiring and amazing to us. And so we magnify your holy name. We worship you. And we ask now that your Holy Spirit would enable you, able us to worship you, not just on Sunday mornings, but every day that we live through every hour of our lives. Give us a constant understanding of who you are and what you call us to do and who you call us to be. Help us, we pray. We ask this in your name, Lord Christ. Amen. And now may the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in his sight. And may each moment of our lives bring glory to the one who gave his all for us. Amen.